Okay, let's talk about the Second Mission Foundation. Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization, exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission Foundation provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement, such as publishing books like The Hill, A Memoir of War in Hellman Province by Aaron Kirk. The Hill is an account of the tragedy of war, the deeply personal experience of combat, and the raw, unfiltered brutality of lower enlisted Marine Corps life. The gripping book, and it is a gripping book, it follows Aaron Kirk's odyssey from civilian to Marine and back again, focusing on his time as an infantry squad leader in Garmsir, Helmand Province, during the height of the Afghanistan troop surge. If you want to read more about the Hill, if you want to buy the Hill, if you want to see everything that Second Mission Foundation is up to, go to secondmissionfoundation.org. That's Second Mission Foundation, all one word, dot org, secondmissionfoundation.org. You're listening to Profiles and Havoc, and Profiles and Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. The Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community through a focus on current affairs and articles of interest to the public in general and the veteran community in particular. Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, and informative content. So go ahead. If you haven't been on lately, check out the pages of Havoc Journal. Read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, culture, fitness, movies, the list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal is always expanding, always striving to improve the reader's experience. So check it out. HavocJournal.com. Havoc with a K. Journal.com. HavocJournal.com. It's been about uh, seven or eight months since I last referenced Benvenuto Cellini. So why not? Um, Benvenuto Cellini, for those that may not remember, uh, was an Italian uh, uh, philosopher, an artist, an artisan, and um, he is the one that is uh, that we attribute the phrase Renaissance man to because he conceptualized that idea of the warrior, the artist, and the philosopher being the three desirable qualities that if you can unite them in one person really makes the ideal man. In many respects, uh, Tom Schumann is uh, what Benvenuto Cellini had in mind. Um, definitely more weight, I would say, on the warrior and philosopher aspects of his uh, identity. Although those that saw him on Vet Rep Theater's Right Loud event on Instagram Live know that he, uh, he he's not. Um, you know, there's a bit of an artist there as well. But um, Tom has built a platform on Instagram um, under the pseudonym Kill Zone which is, uh, I would say, the antidote to like dance reels and everything that you see on Instagram, except, you know, like everybody, I sometimes watch those. So maybe not the maybe antidote isn't the right word, but it is certainly a, a, a serious counterpoint to all those. Um, he deals with a lot of weighty subjects and not usually um, while they're driven from by topical events, they're not usually directly about topical events. Um you know, he is uh, very vocal about strategy, fieldcraft, uh, the philosophy, 
and intellectual framework of war and decisions that lead to war. And he's, uh, you know, he's somebody that I've followed and, and targeted for a long time to come on this show because I knew he'd have a lot to say and I wanted to hear and I wanted to actually talk with him. We've really only talked um, once when he did the Right Loud event and I wanted to, uh, you know, to actually sit and have a proper conversation with him and understand him a little bit more and understand uh, his points of view a little bit more. Um, he's written things that I've, I've just applauded through and through and he's written things I've disagreed with. Um, but I was like, this guy is switched on. He is thinking and he is, uh, you know, interesting, interesting dude. Now that's all that warrior philosopher side of him. And that's substantial and worthwhile in and of itself. Um, that, that makes me want to have him on the show, but Tom has also done several major, um, initiatives that, uh, are worth talking about. Um, he is the founder of patrol base Abate, which we will talk about at length in the episode. But just as a teaser, if you're not tracking patrol base Abate, it's only been around for a little over a year yet. It's had a huge impact in the veteran community. Um, and to those that are on social media, they have probably seen a lot about patrol base Abate, but basically, um, op- being open to any veteran to join to, uh, and allow them to get with others that share their interest and they can form interest groups and clubs based on um, books or guns or hiking or physical fitness or whatever. And, um, and it's just been a way to build community very easily and very effectively for a lot of veterans. And it seems to be a very good um, way uh, and useful way of combating a lot of the um, issues that we see in the veteran community, especially with PTSD and um, veteran mental health, et cetera, et cetera. So Tom, Tom is the, the, the engine behind that. In addition, he has just launched lethal minds journal, which he will talk about also on the episode. Um, also he's just got a good heart. You know, he's a family man and he has, um, you know, the, you know, I briefly mentioned it in the show, but the, you know, kind of seeing him meet with his old, um, interpreter, from Afghanistan was, uh, was very cool and, and kind of shows where his values are. And, um, yeah, it, it just meant a lot for all those reasons. And I'm, I'm, you know, kind of going to let that lie there. Cause we'll, we'll talk about a lot of this during the episode. So I don't want to give too many spoilers out, but, um, for all those reasons, I wanted to have Tom on the show. It's been a long time coming. We have a lot to talk about, so I'll get right to it. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is Tom Schumann's profile in havoc. Welcome to the show, Tom. Hey, how you doing? I'm good, man. Um, so this is a real pleasure for me. Um, you know, you and I really only talked when you came on and did our right loud event uh, a while ago. And, uh, that was awesome and you were great. And I was like, you know, that really only scratches the surface of the number of things I'd like to talk to you about. So let's dive right into all the lines of effort you have going on. And I'm going to ask you just a very 30,000 foot view question. Um, why, why are you, why are you as public as you are? Why are you on Instagram? Why are you like one of the leading, in my opinion, one of the leading 
let's say, warrior philosopher types on Instagram um, posting what you post about as often as you post about it? Yeah, I, um, there's a great, you know, Travis Manning has a thing, if not me, then who? Uh, and, you know, it's just, uh, if, if a sandbag needs to be filled, <laughs> you know, you, you fill it, you know, um, Matt Abate wrote the, the three rules of war and, 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 you know, the final rule is somebody has to walk the point. And if you've been given the ability, capability, whatever, to, to walk point in this, in a space that needs someone to, to get out there and get out front. So, yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, I've, I've been given an opportunity. I've been very fortunate and throughout the last couple of years to have, some opportunities to think, write, reflect, uh, to train in the agogi of my brain here for a little while. And so, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of gaps. There's a lot of needs out there. And, um, if I can do it, why, why not me? When you say there's gaps, that obviously implies that other people aren't filling those, that that's why there's a gap. Is that what you see? Do you see that there's other people that should be stepping up or have the ability to step up and aren't um or are there others and you're just adding your voice to theirs and adding your efforts to theirs yeah so i don't know if i'll point fingers but i'll i'll i mean i'll start with the first first kind of uh kind of gap that i felt like i needed to address and that was in 2018 uh i finally had an opportunity to really start to reflect while i was in grad school about the state of the veteran narrative. And, uh, you know, when I got back from Afghanistan, uh, the first time I had these really hardcore warrior dudes that I, I had this one guy that got shot in the leg and kept fighting for like two hours, you know, and then, and then all of a sudden he's posted on Facebook, you know, don't do fireworks. I'm like, dude, there is no way you have an issue with a firework. Like you are a bad motherfucker. Like I saw you fight, for two hours with a gosh damn half your leg blown out like uh like why are you like are you really is it really and then and and it just seemed that veterans really started to kind of uh compete in the victim olympics and um we were kind of eating up this pity and this sympathy and and pity and sympathy are so antithetical to anything i'm about and they're just i would rather you know I'd rather you hate me than give me your pity or sympathy. There's a, a, it's, and uh, it's like, all right. So like, what is, why, why do we need these people to be validating us? Why do we need people thanking us or, or saying, you know, and it was like, and it was like this really uh, kind of veterans were taking this adversarial role, like uh, with civilians, like you were at the mall. I was at the war. It's like, yeah, you enlisted to be a Marine fucking infantryman and they did it, you know? So it's like, no shit. Uh, like, what did you, you weren't drafted, were you? You weren't conscripted, were you? So like, why are you mad at somebody that you fought the war when, um, and it, it just didn't sit well with me. And, um, and, you know, when I started doing some of my research uh, at grad school, I found, you know, 97% of, the articles from 2003 to 2015 about veterans that came out in the New York times portrayed veterans in some kind of damaged, broken, mm -hmm. unstable, 
Mm-hmm. And I just, uh, you know, this is not who we are. We're not damage broken. Um, but it was, it was, uh, it was, it's like walking in a, in a minefield point, uh, you know, walking through IEDs. If you said, Hey, like if you started to call people out, I'm like, Hey, are you like, and, and it was, and so, you know, I just said, let's, let's get, let's, let's have a new narrative. Let's, let's elevate the narrative around veterans. And, you know, actually in my, in my, in my, um, literary, what do, what do you call it? There's a, we had to look at like all the, the primary sources that are out there around a subject. Um, mm-hmm. either way, I, I, I actually came across that reckoning in 2018 and I said that in their podcast, it starts with the little Mattis thing that says veterans are not, you know, and, and I said, there's maybe these one guys who are also having this conversation, but uh, they're like one of the few and I, and, and I only listened to one of their episodes and it was like their first episode. And it was like, it was like them drinking and glasses clinking and they sounded like idiots. And I'm like, these guys suck. <laughs> it turns out like they're like two good buddies. Now. Um, but I, I actually sent them that paper that I wrote back in 2018 talking shit on them. Um, and uh, so what I found is that as I, as I started to try to have a more positive conversation about who we are the veteran identity and uh what what our narrative can be i found that a lot of people agreed and i think they were afraid to kind of come out and and say this because they didn't want to seem insensitive to somebody with ptsd or insensitive to and and you know of course i'm not a ptsd denier like of course ptsd is a real thing of course like tbi like of course all the stuff that it's not like there's no shame in that there's no stigma in that it's just like maybe I have some PTSD, but like, that's not who I am. You know, that's, there's a lot more to, to me. And so that was really the kind of the first, um, space that I, I, I felt like, uh, I started to maybe feel a little bit of a sandbag. And, um, and then there's this, this idea that it was just like cool to be dumb, you know, uh, you know, the Marine crayon thing, you know, I'm just like, I don't know. I'm around Marines all the time. They're pretty fucking smart you know uh this is not it's not like cool to be dumb you know it's mm-hmm. it's it's cool to be fucking you know it's 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 cool to be savage it's cool to be violent like i'm down with the violence i'm down with the savagery right but like it's also like cool to critically think and use your brain right. and so right. i try to start a conversation that maybe we can uh, we can be uh violent and we could be thinkers at the same time and um and so, yeah, you know, I, I have a couple other lines of effort that I'm happy to to, to talk right. about that I've I've recently taken on as well. Um, and you know, who was supposed to be taking on those? I think we as a I think we as a better population were really complicit. After you know Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, we were really complicit in that narrative. Uh, like society doesn't know how to talk to us or treat us, right? They're like right. they there's some there's some guilt there's some whatever it's like we sent you to this place we don't know like how we should act and when we start to tell them like oh you should feel bad for us it's like okay well if you want me to feel like and so uh i think we collectively had an obligation to kind of correct that narrative or challenge that narrative um and so i don't know if it was any one point you know when it comes to the mental health stuff that i'm working on uh there's a, a, a number of factors you know, people rightfully shit on the VA sometimes, but also there's never in the history of any military 
ever has there mm-hmm. been more resources mm-hmm. than there are now. Sure. And so are there still plenty of challenges within the VA system? Yeah, of course. Uh, it's a gigantic bureaucratic system mm-hmm. that is that the demand far out exceeds their ability to supply what they need. Mm-hmm. Uh, but man, there's there's never been such a concerted effort mm-hmm. uh, by an organization to try to help its veterans. You know, this I don't know what the VA's budget is, but uh, you know, it's got to be right. enormous, right? Yeah. And so uh, we can point at the VA and say you you should do better or whatever. But I I do think um, we've seen at least some some definitely seen some progress there. Uh, tra- our transition readiness seminars, you know, we I, I don't think. I don't think we uh, do a great job in transition readiness seminars. I think, you know, we, we teach Marines how to put on a tie and write a resume. And then we say, okay, you got it. It's like, no, uh, you don't got it. And uh, it would be much better to, to let people know that, Hey, um, you're not going to be out there and be special. You are going to fail a couple of times. Uh, and, and that's okay. Like it's, if, if the first thing that you, if you think you're going to go to school and school doesn't work out, doesn't make you a failure. It doesn't, it's just like, okay, you learned like maybe school wasn't the thing. Right. And if you mm-hmm. thought you were going to start this business and like that, didn't, it's like, that's okay. You know? And so, uh, you're still, we're also still figuring things out. And so I, I think TRS kind of imbues people with like this false optimism that you're going to, you're going to go out there and light the world on fire. Sure. It's like, no, you're going to struggle like everybody else kind of struggles to, to, to work through some things. Um, so I guess, I guess one of the things that comes to mind is, is, I mean, there's a lot of ways to address that. And certainly now you're a field grade officer. Um, I guess what my first blush when I, when I read your stuff is I was like, you're going after it um, publicly and on Instagram and you're meeting the conversation where the conversation is happening which in my experience is a very unmilitary thing to do. You're not writing white papers about this. You're not writing just grad school dissertations about this. This is not, you're not fixing it from the inside. You're going out to where the conversation is. How conscious was that as a strategy? Yeah, I, you know, senior officers and, and, and field grade officers will tell you, you, you know, you, you fix it all through, like you're saying, like through white papers and through journals and um, maybe, I, I, I mean, I think those things have uh, their value. Um, you know, I'm, I'm starting a journal myself to try to address, to fix some things, but I'm taking, you know, a bottom-up approach rather than a top-down approach. Um, I, yeah, I, I mean, I know that the, the thing that I think I, maybe one of, uh, I don't know, my, my strengths is that I'm, more comfortable with the E3, the Lance Corporal than I am, mm. you know, with my peers. Right. And so, uh, it's probably very blue collar upbringing, uh, you know, mom to cop. Uh, and I just, I think, um, I've always felt more at home with the troops than, um, my peers. And so I, I think I probably maybe am more attuned to, uh, what the troops are up to or what the troops are thinking. And, and quite often there are many officers that even, even if it's, they're not like bad officers or not bad people, but they're just aren't in touch with the, right. you know, they're like, hello, right. men, you know, I'm here today. And it's like, that's yeah. fine. Like that's, they, they just, 
don't have that connection and um, they were raised differently and whatever. And it's not, uh, it's just, and so um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm very careful to, I walk a fine line, you know, I, I don't, I don't come on Instagram, put on my uniform and say, as a major in the United States Marine Corps, this is what's fucked up, you know, about the Marines. And so like, I know, you know, people all the time message me like, Oh, are you going to get in trouble for saying that? It's like, I'm, I'm writing about my own personal experience and something and I'm not out here saying this specific person or that, you know, so it is, uh, and especially other, my peers and people senior to me, really, I think they're very uncomfortable with kind of what I'm doing, but, um, you know, so far, so, so good. I don't know. Maybe one day it will be, uh, my undoing. I think if I was trying to be a general someday, you know, I would have to be a lot more careful or whatever, but I'm not worried about that. And, uh, I'm trying to stay true and, and so, yeah, I, I think I, I am, you know, I want to be where the people are, like Ariel said, and, and the people and my people are moving in these spaces. And, and so I want to meet them where they're at. So let's start with, um, with your background. So your mom was a cop in Chicago, right? Yep. Um, that I imagine that can't not have had an impact on you. What did that, how do you see now with the benefit of hindsight, how do you see how that affected you? What did that mean? What values are then still, what fears did that bring up? Like what, what did that do for you? Yeah. Uh, we're, there was, you know, there was definitely a lot of kind of scarcity, uh, when I was growing up, um, single mom, definitely, uh, you know, my mom didn't graduate high school. She had me when she was 19. Um, she left my dad when uh, I was three and she had a newborn, my daughter, or my, my sister, uh, she had a newborn daughter, my sister, uh, and she was a bartender and a waitress for a bunch of years. And we were wow. living, you know, all three of us in a single room in my family, my aunt's house, you know? And so, uh, it was like first 10 years we were, uh, it was pretty touch and go with how things were. And I just think that, uh, my mom's willingness to serve and sacrifice, uh, for the two people that, she was committed to it's just uh it's just that service and sacrifice that example that she set um definitely shaped everything about me and 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 i and i saw my mom be courageous and i saw my mom go into tough neighborhoods she's five foot three you know tiny lady and go out there and 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 it was and it was never about her you know it was always always about us and so um, undoubtedly, you know, it's, 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 it's that thing that it's not that my mom said all these things, she lived it, you know, right. her life was a testament to service and sacrifice. And, uh, she never, you know, she never had like these deep philosophical talks about this kind of stuff. It's just what she did in her everyday actions. And so, um, yeah, I, I, undoubtedly, I think, uh, and, 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 and plus just all the, chaos that I experienced growing up I very much much of my life is attempting to counter narrative like all that chaos is like how can I create or move past this 
trauma, this kind of stuff that I, I had going on as, as a kid and, and try to um, create more stability. And so. So she was bartending, waitressing, and then she made the move into the police force or was she doing both at the same time? And moonlighting? No, she, yeah. So, uh, no, I think probably from like my age of like three to when we got back, my dad lived in Georgia and she got in the car one day and just drove, drove me and my sister back up to Chicago and, um, yeah, no, no GED, nothing. And, uh, I think for a couple of years she was, uh, just bartending, uh, this place called Walter Matilda's, uh, on the South side of Chicago. Um, and, uh, yeah, the police test came out and, and my, again, my mom, big, big hippie chick, uh, never, in a million years was she like, Hey, I'm, I want to be a police officer. It was, Hey, I got these two little fucking mouths to feed and, uh, this is a way. And so, um, yeah, I think, uh, she, she took the police test in 28, 28 years. As a wow. Cop. Wow. She's, I mean, that's a hell of a thing to do. Cause I mean, there's a lot of ways to, you know, she gone and worked at home Depot and tried to be a manager or something like you could have done a lot of other things, but to actually, put herself physically on the line did you ever ask her about that or did you ever as a kid like say hey mom you gonna be all right tonight yeah i i mean i remember um i would find like her little circoms or mary tours mass nams that you know that that uh, she, she never she didn't like talk about it too much you know but i i would find a thing where it said like you know officers from then chase down this person and got this gun or whatever and um and but yeah I, I yeah she never like told me like uh war stories and uh um she eventually you know for her first 10 years she was a beat cop in the tough neighborhoods of chicago and then she found herself uh kind of got some of the office jobs but um yeah for the first 10 years she's definitely in the trenches looking at jamming yeah. um yeah and wh- where were you were you guys in the south side of chicago is that where you lived yeah, so you've got to live in the city if you work for the city. Um, and so there's a neighborhood on the south side of Chicago where it's all the cops, firemen, union workers uh, kind of all live in the same area. Um, and it's 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 too expensive to live downtown for the cops, firemen, and union workers and the city employees, right? And so there's this little enclave on the south side uh, where you'll find uh, all the kind of blue-collar south side Irish Catholic folks who are all the city workers. Yeah. So it seems like you were kind of being groomed for a life in service, not intentionally maybe, but in that environment, that seems like a natural evolution, a natural step to take, right? Yeah. I mean, most of my friends that I go to went to high school with, many of them end up becoming cops, firemen, tradesmen. Uh, and, and so I, I think it is, but most people don't actually ever leave the neighborhood, you know? Gotcha. And so okay. uh, it's, it's one of those areas that everybody lives on the down the same block that they kind of grew up in the house and um i knew i was getting out you know i I knew i i didn't know where i was going i didn't know what i was doing but i knew i, I had to get out uh why and, uh again i think you know no no one in my family had gone to college um no one in my family had ever left the south side you know and uh it was just it probably a little bit running away from it. I, I would, I would guess, you know, just, uh, it was, it was chaos, man. Uh, it was real chaos. And I was going to 
change that pattern. I was, and I was determined to, yeah, not, not kind of relive that script. And, uh, and I didn't, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know anything about college when I went to college. And again, I, and I didn't know anything about having a profession or a career. These are not like things that are discussed really, uh, where I grew up. Um, but I just knew that, uh, this, this, this kind of insanity, this entropy that I experienced, um, it was that I was going to be the chain breaker and, uh, and to do that, it was going to take me getting up and getting out. What, what, I mean, again, to say this, uh, speak on this to your comfort level, but I mean, what was the chaos? Was it, cause it sounds like she would have had a relatively stable job at that point, even though, you know, she's obviously doing some dangerous stuff, but she's not sharing it with you. Was it that Southside was just inherently dangerous and the walk to school is bad or is it, what, what was going on that was making it so uncomfortable? Yeah. Family turmoil, yep. uh, a lot of family turmoil. And what I was, I was, I was, you know, fine going to school or whatever, but, uh, um, yeah, I mean, it's just my it, absolutely family turmoil, yep. uh, lots, lots of trauma, abuse, yep. all kind of stuff. And it just, um, I, yeah, I, I had to get it out of, out of there. I had to get away from that. So how did you, where'd you end up going to college? Uh, Loyola, which is uh, a university on the North side of Chicago. And what was the process like even finding the college? I mean, without kind yeah. of those benchmarks, well, how did that go? Sure. I, I, you know, when I was in high school, I applied to two summer camps. Um, I went to a Yale summer camp and a, and a, and a Stanford summer camp. And, and I thought I was going to be a lawyer um, because I don't, I didn't know like many professional jobs. Right? I knew like there was like jobs like, I, there's like a doctor, you could be a doctor, a lawyer, like that's kind of the only two jobs I knew, like that people right. weren't, weren't poor, you know, <laughs> like, uh, and so I thought you go to college and then you maybe I'll go to law school after. Um, and so that's why I, I went and studied constitutional law over a couple of summers. And, uh, yeah, I mean, my, my SAT scores were just like, I mean, they're good, but they weren't great. Um, it was really me getting on AOL on dial up, whatever, you know, and searching to try to figure out what schools and, and what, and so, yeah, it was, it was all uh, exploratory kind of learning and um, yeah, Loyola was one of the better schools that I could get into. Uh, I got into it and then basically my mom took out a second mortgage to help me pay for the first semester and then said like, that's it. And, uh, so at that point I was like, okay, what scholarships are out there? And, uh, found the ROTC program and that's kind of, uh, how that started to, you know, work, work down that path. Um, so so yeah. you went to, you went to army ROTC, uh, naval ROTC, okay. which and ROTC, which yeah, you could be a Navy or Marine. And I thought yeah. I, I had seen, um, a few good men, and my grandma loved Tom Cruise. Uh, so I thought like I would be a Navy Jag and that way I could still be a lawyer. And, and so my mom, um, had two rules is that she didn't want me to join the military. Didn't want me to get a motorcycle. And so I was a real mama's boy, uh, kind of always listened. My mom was like very heavy handed with me. Uh, and so I was, 
but I also loved and respected her. So I just wanted to sure. keep her happy, yeah. you know? And so yeah. I just wasn't that bad of a kid, um, throughout high school. And, uh, but my mom would always say that I'm the, you know, of her two children, I'm the more rebellious, even though my sister is, she's, you know, completely AWOL. Uh, I'm the more rebellious because I did the two things that she said, uh, don't do. And so, but she at least felt at the time she felt okay that, okay, you're going to be a Navy lawyer. Like she was still really against it, but it was like, okay. And then by my first year in ROTC, I said, I don't like these Navy guys. I like the Marine guys. And then, so that was a serious point of consternation because I started college in 2004. So Marines are in sure. Fallujah. Uh, sure. And then, uh, so that was a really big, you know, every time I come home, my mom is yelling at me about Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld and gotcha. Boyle. And, gotcha. Uh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so it's a battle royal every time I came home. And then, um, yeah. and then I say, okay, also I'm going Marine infantry, by the way. And then that was all another. Uh, so, yeah. So you did platoon leaders uh, course? Is that in through college? Is that how you went into the Marines? So ROTC has uh, you go to you go to officer candidate school over the summer. Okay, um, you do a little six week kind of officer boot camp uh, where you get yelled at and everything, and then uh, commissioned in two thousand eight. Went to a thing called the basic school where every Marine officer goes to six months. And then uh, you, you rank what you want to do. I said, I want to go infantry. I got infantry. Then you go to infantry officers course, which is a three-month course. And then I went to the fleet in right. 2009. Got you. So at, at this point now, I mean, how, I guess let's talk about just actually joining the Marines themselves. Did you feel like life is going well? Did you feel like you're finding a home? Did you feel like uh, it was was kind of the, the I don't know, anti-war stuff from from mom, like, confusing things was it like what was your mindset when you were there because obviously this is now a big gear shift from not just yeah. your home but from college too and from being a lawyer and all that sure i you know i, I knew nothing about the military i i'm not a kid that grew up watching gi joe or war movies i didn't have you know a marine flag on my wall growing up i i i, I guarantee that if you ask me at 15 years old what is the Marine Corps? I would have said, I had no idea, you know? And so, um, it was, it was just that I, I start, I needed a scholarship. Uh, so this ROTC scholarship was a full scholarship. And then I sh showed up and I said, these Marines seem more squared away. It seems like they have better standards or higher standards. Let me try these guys out. And that, like, that is what was the appeal. And then, but I couldn't tell you anything about, so I didn't feel home, you know, at that point. Right. And then I got to, I got to the basic school and I still was like, uh, I don't know, really. Uh, I, I, I just said, I, I saw the guys who didn't want to go infantry and I saw the guys who did want to go infantry. And I said, mm. probably, I think I'm probably more, my values are more aligned with these guys who want to go infantry. Uh, so I still didn't really know what Marine infantry does. I still didn't, it was just like, Hey, these guys seem like, uh, they like challenge, they have higher standards let me try this marimetry thing it, it was i didn't have validation uh until a month or two into the infantry officers course where we're just running wild in the woods doing violent shit being aggressive fighting shooting guns and i didn't grow up you know ever shooting a gun or doing it like i wasn't like violent i wasn't right. fighting you know but it was like there was some little latent warrior kind of thing in me that i didn't know i had until 
I was running through those woods doing savage shit. And I was like, yes, this is my tribe. These are my people. I am actually in that. And so that was, you know, July of 2009 was probably the first time that I thought like, okay, I have in fact found the thing that I'm called to do. And even though I didn't know I was, that was my calling. It was at some point, uh, that's when I think I discovered that. So it's, let's just talk for a second about the timing. Um, Cause yeah, you're doing all this um, really at the kind of at that cusp of the end of the Bush years, early Obama years, but you know, the anti-war sentiment, certainly in the end of the Bush term was really, really high. So you knew what you were getting into and you knew kind of the, you had to know like the, what the political topography was and what, what the temperature was around this. So even not knowing anything about the Marine Corps, did, were you, what was your thought on like, hey, I'm going into, you know, a war, a, a, a war footing. And, and this is, uh, you, know, you got to get smart on this really quick, don't you? Yeah, I was so gung-ho um, and naive and romanticized war still, you know. So even though I every time I'd come home and my mom is cursing everybody out and saying this is all for oil, like, I think I know everything. I'm 18, 19 years old, and I, you know, I think, you know, she's nuts. And um, I, I think back, to, you know, and Tim O'Brien is, he's out on the, canoe and he's looking at Canada looking at and he know and he knows going in like hey this is this is a bad war this is and 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 you know same thing with Marlantis Marlantis uh was at, at his road scholar he's on you know Oxford and he trying to decide he knows that hey I I I was really the so blue collar so gung ho like America mm-hmm. perfect always the good guy mm-hmm. uh so I, I i think i did not have any of that cognitive dissonance uh or reflection for many years actually uh still to come before that i had that moment that i thought oh man uh, what was that all about <laughs> and uh no i i think somehow i all i wanted to do was fight felt like what we were going to go do was yeah, righteous and moral and that we were going to bring freedom and democracy and of course naturally everybody wants freedom and democracy and mm-hmm. the security of that and so uh it it was um even when i was in the war the i was still uh i still believe that we were that it was all good things that we were doing and it was my second deployment um i was a jtac and i was a, a recon advisor and these guys i was advising these afghan army guys were like um you know when you leave the taliban's just going to take this place back and i was like what like what do you mean like you got a million man army we got you got 10 million m16s like the taliban doesn't have to take this place back like the taliban will take this place back when you leave and i was like okay what is going on here uh and so that was like when i started to say that was maybe like the first little crack. And it was like, I want this thing so much for these people that they don't actually want for themselves, uh, which is an important life lesson to never want something more for someone than they want it for themselves. If you ever dealt with like an addict or someone mm-hmm. kind of, that's been destructive, you want this thing for them so much, but they're not ready to. Uh, and then um, I think in 2014, the New York Times ran an article that uh, the week that the Marines left saying in the Taliban, 
took it all back over. Yeah. I was like, man, within a week, <laughs> within a week, uh, everything that we had sacrificed was gone. Um, that was like a second crack. And then I read this book called this kind of war and it talked about Korea and it, and kind of how the end of the, the, the war in Korea happened. And I was like, we were just sending kids up hills to die to move tax around a map. Like we already knew the, the, the where the parallel was going to happen. Like mm-hmm. everything was settled. It was like, we we're like literally 18, we we're killing 18 year olds to just have a little bit of a cleaner tack mm-hmm. on a map, mm-hmm. you know? And I was like, what the fuck? Uh, and so I, I would say like, that was, it was a slow progression for me to actually start to think more critically, um, about what the global war on terror was all about or what we were actually trying to accomplish. Um, but at the time I was still this, you know, 2009, even, mm-hmm. even despite looking at how things were going very poorly, I was still kind of just all in. So when you finally are on your first deployment, um, where were you? Where did they end up sending you on that first Afghan deployment? Yeah, Helmand Province, Sangin District, Afghanistan. Okay. Um, it was the most violent and kinetic AO in the entire war on terror. And how did it feel for you being there? Did you feel like, I mean, obviously you're probably a little G'd up for the fight. And, um, and you know, does it start to fulfill everything you had thought? You know, where you're like, I'm leading Marines in combat. There's no higher calling. So yeah, it was sense. the best. Of, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Yeah. It was, you know, and so you never. There's nothing more fulfilling than being good at what you think you you you've been called to do in this life. And so, you know, in the middle of a firefight, when I could still decide, communicate, act, think, do, and you know, it's it's like Tim O'Brien probably feels pretty good when he's writing you know michael jordan probably feels pretty good when he's on a basketball court you know it's it's it, it was it was no longer theoretical like is this what i'm supposed to be doing in this this life it's like no like right here right in this moment i'm in a flow state where i've never been better at anything or will be better at anything in my life than i am and at this thing and so and you're doing it with people you love and it's exciting and uh it's a thrill and and you're so close to death. And so the stakes are so magnified and it's so rewarding to see these Marines that you've trained excel. And uh, so there's a lot that it was, and I just like fighting, you know, I, I actually like really, you know, O'Brien always says, I, Oh, I killed someone because I, I didn't want to blush. You know, mm-hmm. that wasn't me, you know, that, mm-hmm. that's, I don't, I don't identify or resonate with, uh, it was, I did it out of shame. It was like, no, I, was having fun fighting. And, um, but then of course, and that one day you have a kick-ass day and you stack bodies and then the next day, someone you love loses their leg. And it's like someone you love is dead and dead forever. And so it was, uh, it was definitely an emotional roller coaster. Um, it was, it was, it was, yeah, it was, and, 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 and it can be the best and worst day all yeah. on the same day. Yeah. It was like, this, this is the best day. And then like 10 minutes later, it's like, Oh, actually this is the worst day. And then there were so many times I thought like, this is the worst day of my life. And then the next day would happen. And I'm like, Nope, no, today is actually the worst day of my life. And so, uh, it was, um, it was wild time. No doubt. Talk about the, the flight back after, um, when you're finally, um, you know, in the seat and you're able to kind of uncross your legs and, 
let your hair down a little bit. Do you reflect? Are you G'd up for the next one? Are you thinking over your mistakes? What's going through your head? Yeah, I I had to be very careful to think about my mistakes. I, I wrote a thing about um, a sandbag, or not a sandbag, uh, what, what is it, a, a sea bag, right? Mm. And uh, you just you just pack all the stuff in a sea bag, and the sea bag travels with you all the time. And and if you, if and you just something else happens, and you just stuff it in the sea bag. And um, if you ever start to pull things out of that sea bag, it's it is dangerous, right? I think you should do that probably with a professional uh, because the baggage doesn't go away. The baggage sometimes that sea bag shows up on your front door and it's like. Amazon delivery. Here's your seat bag. Right, uh, right. And you're like, Ooh. And so, um, no, I, I, I don't think I was too like reflective on what, what just happened. Uh, I think, um, I was ready. I, I, again, I, I loved fighting so much that if, if I could have the comfort of a woman and, uh, a carne asada burrito, you know, I think I could do that indefinitely. Right. Cause I'm, um, but at, at, I mean, seven months in, I'm like, yes, I missed the scent of a woman right. and I missed, uh, some, some, a carne asada burrito. And then let me get that. And then, yeah, I, I wanted to go back. I volunteered to go back. You know, I was, I was supposed to go on a Mew, which is, you know, float around the ocean. And that's when I tried out for recon because I thought this is my opportunity to get back and, and fight again. And, and I got it. Uh, and, so talk about that. So talk, so when you, that's how you got your second deployment was going in for recon and assessing for them. Yep. Okay. And that was when you became a JTAC for them. Yep. Yep. Okay. So were you recon or were you attached to recon as a JTAC? How does that work? That's like yeah. Anglico, right? That's one of the Anglico guys. Sure. I was not an Anglico guy. Okay. I was a part, I was a Marine and first reconnaissance battalion. Okay. Uh, you only, you only, uh, earn the title recon marine when you complete basic reconnaissance course mm-hmm. um and so i was when i reported to recon battalion they were deployed into afghanistan and so the idea was i would go through all my schooling and courses and then when they get back i would take a platoon and then i thought maybe take that platoon to go fight hopefully right uh well what came down the pipe is that hey there's an advisor team deploying to afghanistan and that advisor team needs a re- recon guy to go advise a recon company out in the middle boo foo fucking helmet you're the guy and so when i when i joined this advisor team as a one-man reconnaissance advisor um they sent me to jtac school and so i deployed for a year back to afghanistan as a reconnaissance advisor and a jtac and so uh, my primary duties were to advise afghan army um, but i was kind of a freelance for hire jtac so i would go out and support units um uh, that were operating. And so that's what that second deployment looked like. What was the turnaround time between your first two, de- between those two deployments? Yeah, I got back in uh, April, 2011 and I was deployed July, 2012. Okay. And then how does it feel for you now to be an advisor out there? Cause now you don't have people under you, right? You're a one man yeah, show. It was, it was very lonely. Uh, it was very lonely. Um, the, you know, with my first deployment, I was dealing with a lot of moral injury, a lot of betrayal at the company level. Um, I was dealing with losing a lot of people who I really loved. There was a lot of challenges. My second deployment, 
I was out living on an Afghan outpost by myself outside of Marja. And uh, it was July. And all I had was a cot, a pallet of water, a pallet of MREs. I had no electricity. I had nowhere to I shit in a wag bag. I burned this shit, you know. And so uh, it was brutal. The human factors were absolutely brutal. Just um, how austere that was. And then, yeah, I, I had like a couple of Lance Corporals there that would provide security with me, like a little security detail, but uh, it was very lonely time uh, for uh, out there in the middle of nowhere. Um, and so, that was one yeah. year that you were out there, right? So you said, uh, yeah, I, I, I think I ended up being nine months. Um, what, what happened is uh, during that time, they're kept being out, they, they call them green on blue attacks or the, uh, the, the Afghan army was shooting the advisors. Sure. Um, and so that was like the height of these green on blue attacks. And so, after about five months doing that, they made me pull back to be a battalion advisor and I was advising a battalion. Um, and then there was more green on blues. And they said, you got to come back to the regiment uh, and be a regimental advisor. And when I got back to the regimental advisor, I really didn't have a job, you know, like right. that the regimental team was advising like functions like admin, intelligence, operations, logistics, and they didn't have a reconnaissance, you know, element. And so I talked to my boss and I was like, I'm happy to, if you have a job for me, like right. tell me, tell me where you want me to work and out. And he's like, but if I'm just sitting here just to collect combat pay and work out, I think I could probably be better served getting back. And uh, he's like, yeah, you, I don't have anything for you to do here. You just go back. I'm like, okay. And so you left in 2013 and that was it. You never went back to Afghanistan, right? After 2013. Right. Um, how does it feel? How did it feel then to, return to the States and, you know, start your career starts to take on a different trajectory and you start to, you know, focus on different problem sets. Um, are you looking to get back to the fight or are you disillusioned? Are you burned out? No, I'm still all about the fight. You know, um, I ended up going to the school of infantry after that and spent a couple of years at school of infantry, which was really, uh, a really refreshing i was i had some stuff going on in my personal life that was tough but um professionally that was a great job um and you know i volunteered to go be a company commander in 29 palms because the companies uh the battalions in 29 palms were the ones that were going on what's called special purpose magtaf they were going mm -hmm. to kuwait iraq afghanistan and so uh when i when it was time for me to go back to the fleet to be a company commander, I sent the, the monitor an email and I said, Hey, send me the 29 poems. I want to go on one of these deployments to the Middle East because they were the only in the entire Marine Corps. They're yep. the only ones going to the show. And he's like, dude, you want to go to 29 poems? You got it. Right. No, no one, no one yep. calls him and says, Hey, send me the 29 poems. <laughs> right. So no, I, I still, I still had the desire to go back. Um, he sent me to the one battalion in 29 poems that was not going. Uh, and so when I found out where that battalion was going, Australia, I called them back and I said, Hey, I said, I'm volunteering to go 29 Palms because I want to go. They said, you said 29 Palms, you got 29 Palms quick. Uh, so I was disappointed. Um, but ultimately, you know, spending seven months in Australia, I was, I got detached from my battalion and I took my company to Queensland. And so I was a senior Marine in Queensland. Uh, that didn't suck, you know? Uh, so it was, it was not exactly what I wanted, but at the same time, I had a great company. Uh, it was a very cool mission and we were out there doing our own thing. And so, uh, 
it, it worked out. But I, I, yeah, I, I definitely missed it. Wished I had had the opportunity to take a company to combat. And now I think, it, you know, from there, I that's when I went to Georgetown. That's when I went and started teaching at the Naval Academy. That's when I started to have these mm-hmm. moments of reflection. Right. Um, and you know, now I would, I would have a much more complicated relationship with, if I said now I wouldn't necessarily volunteer to go on a combat deployment, I think at this phase of my life. Uh, but that, that took a long time for me to get to that kind of position. How it just now looking back, what was the evolution that you had as a leader between your, those three deployments, um, two to Afghanistan, one to Afghanistan, to Australia, how did you evolved? Um, what did you do differently? What did you see differently? How were you different? Yeah. I mean, I, I am really, uh, I would say, of course you're, I'm becoming a better leader every year in the Marine Corps, you know, if there's some experience or whatever, uh, ultimately, of course, I'm, I'm hopefully becoming a better leader. I, I, I think that I am, and I always have been, if you look at all my fit report, fitness reports from being a second lieutenant through major, one of the first words you're going to see in every report is aggressive, right? And I am extremely aggressive. I only attack. And uh, and my experiences as a second lieutenant, since they were so violent and kinetic, how I approach everything is like, hey, I don't give a shit. Like, this is what we're doing. We're preparing for high-end kinetic. and. There's no respawning. There's no do-overs. There's no, you know, no one comes, there's no Lazarus out there, right? You're dead, you're dead. And uh, I don't give a shit. I'm going to do everything I can to prepare these men to fight and win and to bring as many home. And so I was very singular in, in that approach that I just violently attack whatever's in front of me and and prepare. And so um, at some point I did start to, say, Hey, we got to be better thinkers. Um, when I was a company commander, I, I started a, um, a book club with my staff and officers mm-hmm. on my platoon commanders and platoon sergeants, you know, every month we'd read a book and have a discussion. So I, I did, I did start to evolve a little bit, like in, in that kind of, kind of way, but I, I was very much just a hammer and, and that's why I applied for the, the, when the, when the Naval Academy sent out a message that we need someone to teach English, I was like, man, you are a very one-dimensional human mm. being, and uh, you should really try to see the world a little bit a different way and get outside your comfort zone. And and so that's that. I mean, part of that pro- process was me recognizing a deficiency or you know uh, a gap in my overall leadership and personally, you know. And so, um, yeah. Now, now I think I'm. I mean, obviously, yeah, I, I, at 14 years in, I should be a much better leader than I was as a second lieutenant. Sure, I, I think sure. I, I would, but we'll see. I haven't been back to the fleet since I've had that experience. I'm headed back to the fleet this summer. We'll, we'll see what, uh, how I, yeah, it, it will. It's funny. Cause I do think there's like you talked about with the sea bag, there's, um, there's a time and a place to think. And sometimes it's dangerous to think too much too soon and knowing when and where to do that is a real that's a real inflection point in, in people's personal decision-making. And, and I, so that makes sense to me. I think um, I want to ask about, I guess, just your, I guess where you are right now before we get into all the other activities you have going on, but with all the evolution that you've gone through and now 
um, this is a really pejorative way of putting this, but with the navel gazing, with the thinking, with the, with the unpacking of things. Yeah. Um, do you have any fear about returning to the fleet and going, Hey, I got to, you know, there, I might, there might be parts of myself. I have to switch off again. Is there any sense of, ah, I don't want to, I don't want to rebuild that muscle that I had before or develop that callus again. Is there any sense of that? Yeah, that's, I, I mean, I, this idea of a, there being a time and place to think. And so I think when I got to grad school, I was one, I was only responsible for one person and I was actually being paid to think, you know, yeah. and, and, and I had sold myself a lie leading up to that, that, um, I, I knew I was being destructive. I knew that I was not being personally healthy. I knew that there were things in my life that the way I was acting was very problematic, but I said, Oh, you don't have time for that. Right. You've got these troops. You've got to focus on these troops. And so to me, that was a way to escape my responsibility to actually be a reflective person and, and to do some introspection because I would say, Oh, there's no time for you. You just have to. And so that is into a degree, there's some truth in that, that when you are responsible for people's lives, you've got to just be fully yeah. invested in them. And so, um, but it's also, it was also cowardice. You know, I was a coward. I was too afraid to interrogate that, you know, it's like an IED, you know, you're trying to start to, yeah. and I was, I was too afraid to start poking around and try to uncover what was under, underneath all of that. And, uh, and I used me being a commander as an excuse to avoid it. Um, and when I finally, you know, went to therapy for the first time in 2020, uh, the, the therapist said, you know, thoughts, feelings, and actions. And why are you having these thoughts? Uh, what, what types of feelings do these thoughts generate? And then how do you act when you feel that way? And to think that, you know, I've never gone through that kill chain. Uh, that the first time I thought about that was when I was 34. I mean, what an idiot. Uh, I don't know. But, uh, and so, um, I would say I, yeah, I mean, I but, think that's very normal. Yeah. And, and, and so for the first time I'm like, wait, why, where are these thoughts emerging from? And, and then why do you allow them to make you feel this way? And then look at how you act. And so, um, I, you know, heading back into the, heading back into the fleet, compartmentalization is, is a necessity, uh, for the job. I think probably more specifically in combat. So I don't necessarily, I don't think I, you know, in training, even when I'm back training with the grunts, I don't, but I'm even, even when I have to go to the field, I'm going to have to leave my kids for a month. I'm going to have to compartmentalize that little bit of a dad feeling because sure. I'm going to be sad as fuck, you know? And so you have to kind of say, um, so I, I don't know the answer to that question. I'm going to, I'm going to find out here soon. Uh, but, but again, I, I would say that there was a conversation I had when I was second lieutenant with, uh, Rob Kelly, um, and Rob was prior enlisted. He had, uh, gone to Fallujah as an assault man, um, with one eight. And when we checked into our battalion we were initially going on a mew and i was like so butthurt that i wasn't going to get a chance to fight and then on our christmas safety brief the battalion commander said we're going to afghanistan and i was like yeah fuck yeah and so i remember we got back to the battalion cp and i was kilo company rob was lima and i said hey dude how awesome is this like we're getting to go we're getting the shit and uh rob was like mm, 
I was going to be okay with going on a mule. And I, I knew like Rob wasn't a coward or anything. And I was just like, what the fuck is like, like seriously, dude, you're not like sure. excited to uh, go to the fight. And, uh, well, it definitely makes sense now why Rob was, Rob ended up, he was killed in action on, on 9 November, 2010. And, uh, it made, it makes a lot of sense now. And so, um, you know, I, the, the, there is a luxury as a soldier or Marine. There's a luxury as the warrior, uh, because I, I had a hard time as I've become much more of a peace advocate. Uh, I've, I've had to reconcile the idea that war is a racket with the, my profession, you know? And so how I've, how I've come to terms with that is initially like I had some serious kind of dissonance about that. And then I was like, wait, you aren't actually making any policy decisions. You're not making any strategic decisions. It's not like, it doesn't really matter what you personally feel about this war. Like if there is, if the war happens, we're, we're just going. And like, uh, and they'll need good people to help lead these young men through those kind of experiences. And like, you could still be that person. And, and so, uh, that's how I've kind of reconciled is like as a warrior, it's okay that I, um, I like, I enjoy fighting, but to me, you know, uh, now that I recognize that generally many of the wars we've engaged in have been very questionable grounds to begin with, uh, knowing the consequences is that it's going to be 18 year olds, uh, and it's going to be moms without sons and, and kids without dads, you know, I'm, I'm much, uh, person. And again, this is just me personally, like as a citizen, I think, you know, these things, but as, as a Marine, it's like, okay, well, you know, you still have a, just a job to do. And, um, so it doesn't matter that I am personally much. I hope that we don't have to go fight anybody again because it won't, no one's going to call me and be like, Hey, major Schumann, we're thinking right. about invading right. this next, Hey, Hey, major Schumann, we're going to, uh, go join, you know, Ukraine to fight. Right. What do you think about? No one gives a fuck. You know what I think about that, right? And so, uh, that's kind of we'll, we'll we'll talk talk about that because I mean that that's a pretty significant split. I mean, you know, if you um, I mean, I'm trying to think of a good parallel. Uh, if I was, I don't know, uh, you know, I could choose whether or not to be a member of you know the Socialist Party of America. And I could say, well, I really disagree with their aims, but I'm here. And so I'm going to do what they ask. Like, it is a voluntary thing. I mean, did you ever, I mean, I'm sure you considered it and I'm sure you have that conversation with yourself, but what was your thought process on going on better value staying in here in the Marines than leaving? Yeah, that is, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't have to be a part of it. You're, you're absolutely right that, uh, it is, I am voluntarily sticking around and, you know, you gotta say, well, why? why, why do you do it? Um, and I do think that, uh, ultimately I would never, I'm not going to be able to live with myself knowing that I add value on the battlefield, you know, undoubtedly my troops will be better trained and prepared to fight. And undoubtedly, uh, I will facilitate the destruction of more bad guys and I will facilitate bringing home more kids than I think the next guy you know it's, it's not to say that if 
you remove Tom Schumer from the equation at the Marine Corps is going to come to a, you know, you right, remove Tom right, Schumer right. from the equation and the Marine Corps doesn't even notice, you know? And so, but you got to think I'm at, at the battalion level and that's where I'm about to be at the battalion level. I have an opportunity to influence shape 1200 people. 1200 is a real fucking number, you know? And so, um, it's it's where I think I can add most value, and um, and it's and it's because I love these junior Marines that I stay here, and I think that I want to continue to to serve them the best that I can, and uh, so that's kind of what got gotcha. you going to see. Got gotcha. you. Um, I want to I want to pick up on a couple of things because I can't. Um, they're the things that when you've said them online or on Instagram, social, whatever, uh, they're things that have intrigued me the most. Um, and I think, uh, and I've looked forward to talking about some of this stuff with you. And then I got super busy and I didn't have time to read Wars of Racket. And I'm really pissed about that because I'd like to have a more intelligent conversation than I might be capable of having on it right now. But I want to ask you about what you said. Um, let's start first with uh, one of the most recent things you said, where you said, um, you know, we've gotten into the wars for dubious reasons. Um, Specifically, do you think Afghanistan, I know obviously, you know, the withdrawal was rough and brought up a lot of stuff for, I know you, um, as well as a lot of other folks, but do you think Afghanistan was dubious? Do you think that was a dubious war to get into? Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I was actually just with this guy's career Intel guy, um, two nights ago and he's been in the intelligence community for like 20 years and he specifically studies that region and um you know ultimately there were four or five al-qaeda training camps and those camps were the ones that you see them on like the monkey bars and doing barrel rolls but they're also plotting uh to conduct terrorist attacks abroad uh they did successfully coordinate and direct uh and so at that point it's like yeah, you, you can't plan your terrorist attacks from these camps anymore, right? right. And so uh, I think you go in there, you, you fuck those camps up, and you say, don't do that shit anymore. Um, but ultimately, much of the command and control was still coming out of Pakistan uh, at that time. Uh, many of the folks who were economically supporting and providing leadership was coming from Saudi Arabia. Uh, and so, you know, it's to me, it would have been totally righteous and justifiable to go there, kick those camps out, have the horsemen, SF guys ride through, fuck up your camp, drop a couple bombs, they go over the mountains. And I think, yeah, I think that would have been totally good to go. Um, there's no reason to t topple the Taliban government uh, because we didn't have any strategy of what to do once you topple, topple the Taliban government as you know, is now evident that that wasn't going to be successful because the Taliban is now the government. Um, so there's no, no need to kind of tapple, topple the Taliban regime. Definitely no need to have an occupying force there. Um, but I, I do think there, there was a way to do Afghanistan that could have been righteous or justifiable. And I think that that would have been, and this is me way out of my lane, way out of my box. Right. Uh, but I, I think this is, you can easily go there, fuck those camps up and say, you can't plan 
operations not in these camps anymore to kill Americans. And then he could have called it a day. And uh, I think he could have done that in a couple months. And uh, that, to me, that that would that would have been the war on terror that everybody could have got behind. And um, maybe it lasts three or four months. Yeah, I I don't know. I I I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, I think let me start with. I don't think it's necessarily dubious. I think yeah, there's definitely different strategies that you could employ, and I think you know war. The study of war, as you well know, I think is nothing but a study of halftime adjustments. What changes do you make? How do you you know? It's never your plan never survives that that first contact, and you adjust and adapt and hopefully overcome. Um. I wonder about in Afghanistan's case, um, that CT framework of go schwack them and then um, get out. I mean, I, it, in my opinion, you need intelligence to do that. And the only way to do that is to own the street. If you don't know where they are and you don't know how to get to them, you're just going to end up doing it over and over and over. And it's going to get harder and harder to find them. And with a facilitating government in place, um, I, I think we would have ended up in the same, in the same situation over and over and over again. And we didn't have the luxury of sitting back waiting to see if we'd been successful in eliminating everybody we needed to, because we just lost 3000 of my neighbors um, <laughs> when I was at nine, when I was at the towers that day. Um, but I, but I also, I think there's another piece that I want to throw out to you and see um, just bounce it off you. Um, Afghanistan itself, you know, being that we were there for 20 years, it's a pretty valuable piece of real estate. You're right on the doorstep of every geopolitical enemy we have. Um, and at that point, there's a lot of second and third order effects of being there that I think um, a lot of folks sometimes gloss over. Um, do you think that's a worthwhile reason to remain to go, hey, look, we've bled a lot to be here. At the at, When I left Afghanistan in October of 2020, um, we, were lo- uh, we hadn't lost anybody because the the Riv and the peace process was happening, but up until then, we were losing about thirteen to twenty-five troops a year, which is you know you don't want to lose anybody. But as wars go, it's not terrible to own that kind of land, and you know the Afghans were taking the lead, and the Anasak guys were out there doing a lot of stuff. Is there an argument to make, in your view, um, that it might have been? worthwhile at that point with the sunken cost that we'd put in to stay and that that was yeah. manageable for the long term i mean there's models that that would suggest that it is i mean you could look at germany you could look at japan um there, there's definitely models and examples of presses suggest that you can keep a force in a place and maintain the stability within that area you know you brought up the idea of a sunk cost fallacy and um you've already invested so much that you just keep keep investing and and and, and what you're arguing is that the, the investment was relatively low and the the reward or the return on that investment was potentially worth it uh of course i think that's a fair argument um you know to your initial argument um i i think i think we knew where most of those camps were and i think we had and we had and we still do maintain the reach that um, if we needed to reach into those camps, I think soft could have continued to potentially degraded that without actually, um, you know, having an occupying force. Uh, 
but this is all uh counterfactual because it's all yeah. kind of just yeah. uh, assumptions right and so sure. um impossible to necessarily say one way or the other uh I, you know it depends on what you view america's role in the world uh and it depends on how much you are into event uh, being an interventionist uh yep. Yep. and and so yeah i i think that's a very fair argument to say that there was a relatively low cost and there was a relatively high return on investment by being positioned there. Uh, I guess we'll find out um, what the costs benefits associated are with not being present there. And yeah. Yeah. I, I think, let me, let me ask you this and this is just while we're doing thought experiments and things that we will never have answers to. Do you think Putin would have invaded Ukraine if we pulled out of Afghanistan, if we had not pulled out of Afghanistan? Um, yeah, so I, I did. I spent some time um, studying when I was at Georgetown. I went on a I was on a nine month Stanford fellowship concurrently that had me uh, studying Russia. And, and um, mm. I was paired up with Russian Ph.D. counterpart and. And I got to go to Moscow and I got to meet Lavrov and I got to go to the Ministry of Defense wow. and I got to go to the Duma. And um, so I spent a, about a month there in Russia meeting academics, meeting military, meeting politicians. Uh, and then so we went there and then we brought all the Russian counterparts, PhDs, and we went to D.C. Then we went to Stanford. And so I got to spend a lot of time thinking about that problem set. Um, and undoubtedly uh, russia was never going to is, is never going to accept the world order as it currently is and so and lavrov was like very clear when i met with him i mean that russia did not view themselves as a junior partner on the world stage they've they said we are equal if not a greater uh, and ultimately the way that you have structured the, the world order is prejudicial to us uh, and we are, we are intent on restoring what we think the proper. So um, that was always uh, an end that Russia intended to accomplish. Now you got to look at means and, and ways and did they have the means and the ways to accomplish that uh, is, and so you know, China has an end state of what they anticipate the world to look like, right? Uh, they're very patient in shaping that ultimate end. Um, and so when they look at their, 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 their short-term planning is like a hundred years, like right. in a hundred right. years, here's what we, and, and our long-term planning is like a couple hundred years. Right. And so uh, I think, you know, I, I, I think uh, undoubtedly Putin had always had intentions to do what he sure. he did. Uh, sure. And I don't think and I think he was very clear about that. I don't think that was a secret either. Um, you know, did did the disaster of withdrawal expedite or encourage or embolden them to think that now is the time to do that? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely possible. Yeah. I want to ask you a really uh, military history nerd question um, that, again, there's probably no right answer to but in your opinion what's the surest way to war what's the surest pre-incident indicator that war is about to happen what precipitates what must precipitate war is there one thing is there a confluence of things what do you think yeah i mean i think uh lucidity said it's uh war is all about um 
honor, pride, and fear. Uh, and so whenever a country's honor, pride, or fear are kind of um, challenged, and they think that they have the ability to uh, do something about that, I, 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 so I, I mean, you can clearly look at it, the, the honor and pride piece as to a contributing factor to what happened in Ukraine. And so, uh, you know, war is always about honor, pride, and fear, which is really like ego driven. Um, and so, yeah, you, you just look at the people who have the means and where are they in the spectrum of having their honor, pride, or fear challenged. And they're gonna, they're gonna react to that one way or the other and whether that, and so like China's doing that, but it's not, it's doing that below the threshold of armed conflict. Right. And so they're right. doing stuff in the gray zone right now. And so their honor, their pride, and their fear, their their fear of having being boxed in, right, is is kind of driving many of their actions. And uh, so, do you think you that's know, their biggest we, fear? Sorry to interrupt, but do you think that's their, their biggest fear? Uh, it's definitely driving a lot of their strategy is is to not allow themselves to be boxed in in the South China Sea, and so much of everything that they're doing is is bent on that. And then there's also, you know some honor and pride aspects where China, you know, sees itself as it was, China was really embarrassed for a long time. Like the 1900s were really rough for China. Uh, they were getting beat up by everybody. And, mm-hmm. um, and so I, I think they want to be this dynasty again, this, that's the honor pride part. And uh, so a lot of their actions are driving towards that. And so um, I think it's know, also what, the people, I think it's also though their fear of the people. Um, that China's number one fear, I think, is especially since Mao has been the people and and making sure that in that that social construct, there's a trade off that, hey, we're, we're going to give you safety and a little bit of economic security and in exchange, you give us unquestioned loyalty. And I think that's been shaken a lot. Does that do you think so? Or do you think I'm missing yeah, something? I, I don't know the pulse of the the I, I'm, I'm not um, educated enough to know exactly what the current pulse of the Chinese citizen is. Um, but I think you're absolutely right that, uh, you know, Mao killed like 40 million of his own people uh, because he viewed them as a challenge and feared his own people. Right. And so, yeah, China has definitely a rich history of killing their citizens when they feel threatened. Um, and, and definitely that could be a contributing factor if they felt like that. So, yeah. Um, I want to just ask one, I just want to ask you, uh, I can't let this go without asking you something directly about Afghanistan. And you said before, you know, that danger of wanting something more for somebody than they want for themselves. From my point of view and, and correct me and tell me where, where you see this differently, or if you do see it differently, what makes Afghanistan so difficult is to the extent that that's true, that we wanted something more for them, maybe than they wanted for themselves. Um, if there's a national interest in being there, how does that rec- how does that reconcile itself when you're like, unfortunately, we got to be here? Uh, yeah, I don't want to drag you kicking and screaming into this, but God damn it, you're gonna keep blowing us up. I got to do something. There, there. I, unfortunately, I can't leave you to your own devices because you're get you're too unpredictable. You're too leveraged, and there, I've got to put my thumb on the scale somehow. And it sucks, but I got to be here. So. Yeah, I, I need I need you to want this, and if you don't, then I'm gonna have to stick around until you do. 
does that, am I wrong? I mean, tell me where you, how you see that. I'm just throwing it out there to you as kind of a general concept. Yeah. Um, if the idea of your instability is a threat to my security, uh, is kind of what a little bit, I think of what you're suggesting. Um, there's a lot of instability out there, Yeah, you yeah. know? And so, uh, you, you look at anywhere in Africa, many places in Asia, sure. I mean, you can look south of our border and look at the instability mm-hmm. there. Right. And so, uh, if, if your idea is a, a world with no risk, um, you're going to be pretty busy, pretty spread out, you know, and so, uh, pretty committed in a lot of places. And so, um, you know, I, I think the world is always going to be a dangerous place and you just have to kind of, you know, it's up to us, our leadership to determine where we're willing to some accept some risk in the world and where yeah. we're not. And so, um, and triage you know, the if, risks. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. If, if, I mean, if you truly believe that the instability within Afghanistan, uh, was going to result in another, major terrorist attack then i guess yeah you, you've got to keep doing what you're doing maybe um even or maybe not doing exactly what you're doing maybe there's a better way to do what you're doing but right. uh right yeah i i yeah i i uh i think again it, it it comes down to what do you see as america's uh role in the world and are we do we need to make sure that there's peace and security in every corner where people are acting a little bit wild uh and yeah i definitely don't think that i i but i do th- i i do wonder about um it's interesting i think you you phrased it very well that w- one of the afghan problems it was that you know we're trying to drag people to who have been leveraged for so long to care about what we think they should care about but then we're we're stuck between a rock and a hard place because they've already we've already demonstrated that afghanistan left to its own devices can fuck us up in ways that perhaps, you know, unrest in Thailand or Burma isn't necessarily going to. So then it's like, okay, well, if, if this is a uh, something that's a direct threat, how do we go about doing that? And I, yeah, I mean, it, it's a, it's a tough, um, it's a tough nut to crack. It's, you know, it's, you got to ask is, is the Taliban a direct threat or is, is the, I, I would say it's unlikely that the Taliban is a direct threat. It's, it's the idea that is the uh, instability in Afghanistan. Does that allow outside actors? Yes, to, exactly. To use that place, hundred percent. So, yeah, I mean, it, there. Yes, it did happen once, and it could happen again. Um, so I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, no, it's completely speculative. Um, so listen, I want to. I I, I want to make sure we we cover all the stuff you're doing now. So one of the sandbags that you've stepped up and started filling was pb abate did you know matt abate yeah so we uh i was killed company three five we had a section of snipers who were in direct support of the company uh the section leader of that snipers was matt abate uh they had two sergeants they had sergeant browning and sergeant uh abate and then you know a team of about 10 total so uh matt wasn't in Kilo first platoon, right? Um, but he, uh, his team supported my platoon routinely, uh, especially the first couple of months. My platoon was the most 
engage unit in that AO. And so wow. uh, Matt, Matt would routinely roll with, with, with me and, and my crew. Uh, and so, you know, he was always there when I would be planning uh, the next mission because he would kind of talk about how they would employ or where they would employ. Um, he was on the patrols and then, uh, and then, so I, I lived at patrol base fires, uh, which is where the, the sniper team worked out of for, for a month or two before I got in a little bit of trouble and got pulled back to the company fob. But, um, uh, yeah, I, I was, and then when, when Matt would come back to the company fob, you know, he'd always stop by my room and we'd shit the shit. And, um, yeah, we fought many days together alongside one another. What was so special about him that it was worth founding yeah. PB Abate? Sure. Matt was like, uh, I always say he, he's kind of like a, a rock star. Uh, like think of like John Lennon or, you know, somebody that I, I, everybody wants to be around him, you know? And so, uh, I mean, he's good looking tattoos, uh, just badass, and people just gravitate. He's just cooler than everybody, you know? And so yeah. he just, people gravitated towards him. Um, he was physically superior in his physical accomplishments. Anybody that's ever been to a school with Matt or a course, like a Marine course, always, there's always some kind of story about how on the last big physical event, how Matt like finished, then ran back and carried everybody's stuff and then then went back again. Yeah. And so there's always like some kind of, he really was uh, this kind of super human type guy where just physically superior than everybody else. Um, and then when it comes to, but, and, 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 and normally, you know, a guy who everybody wants to be around might develop kind of an ego or, but that wasn't Matt. He's still like, even the least Marine could still approach Matt and he would like, be cool to them you know he was never like it you know and so um he was very approachable stayed humble uh and then just on the battlefield there was i fought with all these lions you know i fought with some really hardcore badass dudes and then there was all of us and then just above us was matabate he was just so lethal so brave um he was really, he was the Achilles and, uh, he, mm. he himself, he could shift the entire battle, him personally, you know, wow. uh, with how, how things were going. And, um, he, he was the Taliban's worst nightmare. And, uh, he was the guy you wanted on, you know, he, he was, he was your first draft pick every time. Right. And, uh, if you're building a team every time you, you, you take Matt Abate first because, and, you know, there were several times where, you know, again, I'm very aggressive. And so I'd want to go do this next thing on a mission. And the troops would be like, eh, a little skeptical. And Abate would be like, I'm in, sir. And as soon as you got Abate, everybody's like, well, now we've got a chance. You know, if Abate is with us, now wow. we've got a chance. And so, um, yeah, he really was just, uh, he he was legendary. And, and it's it's rare that, people recognize somebody who's legendary in the moment. And I think everybody, but I think everybody did recognize like that this guy is a fucking legend. And so, you know, it's like, if you got to fight alongside a Dan Daly or John Bassalone, it's like, yeah. we knew, we knew that that's the kind of guy we were, we had uh, fighting with us. And so talk about um, why he was the one that, you know, you could rally around for PB Abate. Why, you know, was it, was his death 
the instigator for PB Abate, or was it that it, he was just symbolic of something you wanted to build in his memory and to help everybody? Yeah. Uh, I mean, because he is the most legendary warrior I've ever known, uh, and part of my own lifelong duty is to honor the legacy of the fallen. Uh, I will always, that'll always be part of who I am. And uh, so if, if I'm building this organization, uh, which is going to be a legendary organization, we're, we're going to be the modern day BFW, the modern day Legion, because there's 20 million veterans out there and, and every one of them can come inside our friendly lines. Right. And so eventually we will be the, you know, the, the, that that modern day VFW. If, so if we're going to build this legendary thing for the troops, who better name it after the most legendary dude I, I've ever served or far alongside? And, and and if I had to preserve somebody's legacy through our namesake, um, Matt Abate was a was a very easy choice. That it, it's it's him. Let's honor him. And talk about just the the evolution of of PB Abate and how you conceptualized it and how you've gone about executing that. Yeah. Um, started with Justin McLeod. Uh, so Justin was one of my team leaders. He, um, he had D one scholarships to go play baseball. And instead in 2008, he enlists in the Marine Corps. Uh, he goes to Iraq, uh, with three, five, then he goes on a Mew with three, five. And then by the time he's in my platoon, he's already done two deployments and he's thinking, he's going to extend, you know, for, he, he could EAS, right. But he says, hey, I'm going to extend. Um, and then right before we deploy, he has a kid Desmond and he says, you know, I was going to extend, but I think I'm going to EAS. And um, I said, man, you're my best shot in the platoon. You're uh, my point man in the platoon, best nav guy, you know, do what you got to do, but maybe just talk to your wife one more time about it. And he comes back and says, you know, sir, uh, you're my family too. I'm going to, I'm going to extend. And so two months later, he's a triple amputee. He's bleeding out on the X. I got a Marine handing me his body parts. Um, and, uh, you know, initially he was, he was doing okay, but, uh, it took a long time to get the bird to land that day. And, uh, so initially he's smoking a cigarette saying like, fuck you to the Taliban, but you, you could see he's starting to expire. Yeah. And, uh, so then I got to have a conversation with this guy about, Hey, um, you know, you said you were going to coach your son's little league team. You said you were going to, and so I'm trying to help him find the world to live. Very, very tough conversation to have with the guy who's triple MVP and who you feel personally responsible for being there. Um, and, you know, uh, he wasn't the first Marine that I lost stateside. Uh, but what I found is that um, I allow myself to be vulnerable with my daughter, you know, as is the, is, and, and so my daughter was two years old at the time and I just put her to bed. And, and when I would, when I would sing to her and before I put her to bed, I I'd just say, you know, you gotta be present you gotta come out of the yellow. You know, you're always in the yellow. You just gotta be here with her because this is so special. And so I had just put my daughter to bed and I got a text uh, about McLeod. And so, you know, calling all my Marines, that night was a, it was tough. Um, it was a tough night and, you know, I've written letters and I've had to make these kind of calls, that kind of stuff, but it's just different when you, uh, 
when you just put your daughter to bed when you're not when you and uh so the war you know the war intruded back into my home and into my and so uh and then within about 30 days from that i had two more marines from when i was a company commander commit suicide and i just said you know okay uh you're gonna do something about this you're just gonna you know and so i said well let's let's see what the problem is and so i started to read all the va suicide reports and i and i found that the leading proximal cause of veteran suicide are feelings of disconnectedness and isolation. Okay, so veterans who are disconnected or isolation are isolated are the ones who are most likely to commit suicide. Okay, what kind of veteran? Uh, well, as it turns out, 80% of veteran suicides are people who never went to combat. Right. And as it turns out, there's no correlation between combat and veteran suicide. Okay, so if suicide is just a veteran problem, and it's a, it's a veteran problem of veterans who are feeling disconnected and isolation, uh what is out there that's getting everybody in community and connected and what i found is there's all these great resources uh for our special forces and our combat wounded and to me um that was very encouraging that the the men who sacrifice the most for this country uh our nation has rallied around we ask you to sacrifice the most and we're and we're and we're we've made a concentrated effort to really so as an american i'm proud of that uh but it seems like um we've allocated 99% of our resources to 1% of the veteran population. Right. And the data just doesn't support that. Right. And so the idea that uh, only a Navy SEAL needs community just doesn't, doesn't check out, you know, cause I think, I think of a, an aircraft maintainer who keeps a C-130 up in the sky. I think of a helicopter maintainer. I think of a, a motor T I think of a, a communicator. I think it doesn't matter what service uh, somebody that keeps a ship, you know, works in the ship's engine room, right? All these people were part of a really tight knit team and they had a purpose. It's like, Hey, you got to keep the destroyer moving. You know, you keep the ship's compulsion going like that's important. You know, you keep this plane in the sky, you keep people with the ability to talk. And so, uh, and also by the way, if push came to shove, everybody on this team would die for one another. And so the idea that it's, I just think that there's the, the, the need for connection is a, human need uh but i would argue that that need is intensified through our service uh that there is something special about service that really intensifies that feeling of community that's why people you know adopt our language and say things like squad this squad that why why do you have to use that kind of term because there's it's such a powerful kind of thing to be a part of squad um and then you had a purpose right you know you got you had a mission statement you know, this is your task and it's in order to do this thing, you know? And so, and, and so that's what people need. They need a why and they need to, and they need the tribe. And so, um, and so I said, let's build this place. That's, uh, and, and so, and, and as I looked and as I continued to do my research, I looked at all these organizations and said, Oh, check this box that you have a disability, check this box. If right. you have a disorder, check this box that you went to combat. And I can check a lot of boxes, right? But what if I don't want to be narrowly defined by my wounds? What if I don't want to be narrowly defined by a disorder that I have? What if I what if I just want to say, hey, I'm Tom and I would like to have community, you know? And so there's so many barriers to entry with all these other organizations. And uh and I I said, let's let's get rid of all these barriers to entry and let's just say your service is your ticket to admission. And let's just say we've got a big tent and we got a seat for you at the table. And 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 the other resources that were out there were all i felt really reactive and it was like okay you've had a suicide attempt yeah now you now yeah. you've had a drug overdose now you and i said what 
this is all right of bang. Like, let's get left of bang. Let's be preemptive and proactive. And let's say, whether you're struggling or good, wherever you're at, like, let's just get you in community. And, and, and because we know that when you have that battle buddy covering your flank, you're just less likely to commit suicide. And, and let's help veterans find that purpose again through service and community. And so we went and got uh, 350 acres out in Montana and uh, we just threw some tents up on the side of a mountain and said, Hey, uh, if you served, you're in period. And uh, we're going to get around the campfire. The patrol base is a place where you can, it's the place where you can take off your gear because you're inside friendly lines. You can be vulnerable. You can find that empathy. Uh, let's do some service work around the patrol base. Let's go grab a shovel, clean up this forest, do some, you know, and then, uh, and then also what we're going to do is we're going to build these local chapters so that you can tap into that community at any time. And so that you've got the sustainable, uh, enduring kind of model with, with the local chapter. So we got 43 local chapters that once a quarter, once a quarter, they do the service project. And so veterans are men and women of service. They're men and women who feel like that they, they need to be sacrificing, right? Um, lead in the service component because there's so many great service organizations already out right. there. What, whether that's uh, Team Rubicon or whether it's 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 the lo- the local charity that feeds the homeless, whether it's right. the local charity at the women's shelter, right? There's already all these trusted kind of service-oriented organizations in our community. We've got the manpower because again, we're the most, we've got 17 million veterans and, and you know, all a million active duty. Like let's, let's find those places where we can get in, where we fit in and say, Hey, and, and it was so important to me to do this community work as well, because I am a narrative guy and, and I, and I, and this narrative is still sticking to veterans that we are damaged, broken, unstable, entitled yeah. with, with people that, that hold a cardboard sign that say, Hey, I'm a veteran. Feel bad for me. Give me $5. And I said, you know, what what better way to to attack that narrative, to counter that narrative, to say not only are we not damaged, broken, looking for a handout, we're actually the people of continued to service and, and we go to where our community needs us. And that's what a veteran is. And we're we're men and women of service and 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 uh we find we find the need and we meet them. And so um and then I wanted it to be, you know, uh, Tom Schumann likes I'm a grunt, I like hiking and I like reading books, you know. And so I, if I if, if it was up to me, the clubs would be uh, a book club that goes on hikes. Right. But like <laughs> that might not be what everybody else is into. Right. And so if, if it's, if, if accessibility and inclusivity are kind of the, 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 the bedrock of what we're doing, it's gotta be, Hey, what are you into? Okay. You're into mountain biking. You're into yoga. You're into music. You're into art. You're into uh, Olympic lifting. You're into jitsu. Okay, great. We'll do that thing at the patrol base. Well, there's, well, you come do that thing that you're into with fellow veterans and you guys got do your thing. Right. And, um, and so, yeah, we, we're, we're running all different kinds of programs out there and we make it free of cost because there can't be any barriers to entry. Right. It can't be, Oh, I would do that, but I can't afford it. Right. Or I would do that, but, but I'm really not into books. It's like, okay, what are you into? All right. Then we're going to do that. Right. And so there, there, there can't be any barriers. And so, and, and the other thing that we keep fighting is this, uh, you know the GWAT definite GWAT generation has really tried to redefine what it means to serve, and they try to they're trying to say like if you didn't kill Osama bin Laden, well you didn't really serve, right? You know right. If, if you if you didn't have a suppressor on your weapon and four night vision goggles, you didn't really serve. And what I want to say is like that's bullshit. Like I don't give a shit if you deployed, didn't deploy. You raise your right hand, you did three or four years in service to your nation, you fucking serve. Period. End of story. And so so many of these GWAT vets and our current veteran population will 
and and not just GWAP, but like 80s and 90s veterans now too, where they were all really proud of their service, but now they've been kind of indoctrinated yeah. in this idea where they say, well, I was just a, yeah. or I'm just that you, you did so much more. It's like, no, you fucking serve and I fucking serve. Like right. it's, and so I'm, I keep fighting this. Well, I was just a, or I'm just a, and I've said, nope, don't give a shit yeah, that this is actually, we built this patrol base for you specifically. And, um, and it's, it's been, um, I mean, I think it's saving lives. And, yeah. Uh, I've, I think so too. How long has it been around? It's been like two uh, years now, three years. How long? Uh, no, uh, just a little over a year. Okay. That's what, okay. I, that's when I started getting back on social media for the first time in 14 years. And I, so I didn't know if it was new then or if it was just new to me. Um, you guys have had, I mean, that's been a pretty exponential, you know, uh, like increase in activity and, and, and exposure in that year. That's been a big, big, big spike. I love, and I'm just going to double tap what you said, because I love one of the things I love, not just about PB Abate, but also about what you always say is um, the refutation of the dysfunctional veteran narrative. And I want to really emphasize what you just said about that, that the country needs the veterans. It's not just, oh, well, we're not dysfunctional and all that. You don't have to feel you know pity for us. It's that, no, 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 there's actually a lot veterans can bring to the country and to not leverage that and tap into that is a real shame. And we get, and we lose that when we start becoming a victim population. I, I just love that message. And I love that that's what you're doing with this. Is this going to be your career for the next 40 years, even after you get out of the Marine Corps? I mean, is this, is this going to be your primary line of effort? Do you think? I don't know, uh, where, 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 you know, yeah. uh, this, this road takes me. I know that I will always be involved with PB Abate. Um, I know that, uh, you know, I won't rest until we've got every, uh, active duty reservist national guard and veteran, uh, feels like that they've got a community that they belong. Um, and so there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, but I, I, I don't know, um, where I'm headed or what's going to happen. I, I do know that if the question is, will you always be in service? I will huh. always be in service, right? Uh, what, what that service looks like. I, I don't. Well, let's, let's talk about one of the other ways that might manifest itself. So talk to me about lethal minds journal. What's going on yeah. there. What's the, what's the story, origin story of that? Sure. Um, you know, uh, again, I, I, I've been trying to, build a space where uh it's cool to to use your brain and it's cool to criti- you know i got this dead reckoning bumper sticker on my desk here it says critical thinking is not a crime right and uh this this idea that um there's just this the discourse is not in a good place and um and people feel like you know there's just not enough reflection not enough thinking and uh i'm all all about uh training it's you know, this, this thing that you have, which is really, you're mostly the weapon, which is your mind, but your mind only becomes a weapon if you're able to put that into practice, you know? So, you know, I just took a philosophy course. I love philosophy, right? But your philosopher might not have, philosopher has a very trained mind, but not might not be a lethal mind because they can't put those kind of things into practice outside of academia, you know? And so I'm all about like, Hey, get the knowledge and then apply it. And the application is where that, that uh, knowledge becomes lethal. 
And I'm talking about any kind of knowledge, you know, throughout the whole full spectrum of uh, history, art, philosophy, poetry, you know, science, math, international politics, you know, like find ways to train, get those repetitions and then apply it in those spaces. Yeah. And so um, what I, what I, you know, the, the uh, trajectory of social media, I think is actually a really positive one. If you filter out, all the bullshit. Yeah. Uh, there's just so many people who are invested in providing good resources uh, for knowledge and, and training and tactics. And whether, again, you can pick any one of those buckets, whether it's foreign affairs or field craft or weapons or poetry or writing, there's just so many good spaces where people are really trying to provide awesome resources to, to better our, ourselves and um but it's very disaggregated and i thought maybe we can find a place to kind of create a more central repository where a lot of that good information kind of filters through because it's it's a lot to kind of track across right now and 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 define that and so a lot of really good efforts are probably lost in the fray because there's so much information out there and so one let's kind of try to find a way to centralize a lot of this really good stuff that's already happening and then Mm. you know um Senior officers uh, are going to keep emphasizing that if you want to see change, you've got to do it through writing. And it's like, okay, uh, but your average Marine, uh, soldier, sailor, airman aren't going to find their thoughts in the spaces that those people uh, have their attention, right? And so uh, I know that the troops have all these great ideas and uh and i know that so let's let's find a venue a medium where that they can have their works and their ideas uh be seen and, and broadcast and, and so uh i wanted to create a space where the troops can get their ideas out there and their troops can feel um you know they can they can be published and then they can be circulating those ideas in and amongst the people. So, you know, a Lance Corporal isn't going to read the Marine Corps Gazette, you know, generally. The, a Lance Corporal generally isn't going to read the proceedings. They're not going to read uh, The Economist. But there's, mm-hmm. there's, there's a, there is a, we can, we can create this, this journal where no shit, a 19 year old actually finds the content and the material engaging and they're like, shit, that's a good idea. Uh, I got a good idea about that too, right? And so to, to create discourse and conversation around the challenges and the issues that we're facing, everybody is very good at articulating the problem, right? Everybody can bitch about the problem. And I'm saying like, okay, we all see all the problems. Every fucking Lance Corporal in the whole world can you, you hit, hit record on a tape recorder right. and they'll bitch for the next 10 hours. Right, like, right, right. All right, yeah. all right, you got all the problems. What's the solutions? And now I'm saying, now you've got a venue to, to kind of offer up some of those solutions. You know, it's funny. You're, you're a leader, but you're a man of the people. It seems like you're, you, you constantly are looking for grassroots efforts and ways of problem solving from the bottom up. So I'm, with that in mind, I'm going to ask, what's the end game? Where do you see this all going? Do you see it all becoming one line of effort or do you see it all being disparate lines of effort that are just coming out from you and in different venues and different media. Yeah. I, I mean, PB Abate came up because I felt like 
veterans are killing themselves and I feel a duty to, I, again, it would have been so good if there was another organization doing what PB about day was already doing. And I could have become an advocate for that organization. Like that would have been ideal is that there already is a super inclusive yep. organization that's putting veterans in the community and, and, and just, but I, again, I think there are organizations doing that, but it is very narrow to who gets to be a part of that. And so that was out of a necessary duty. Right. Yep. And, and, you know, and kill zone was, just my own kind of passion of saying, uh, I think this narrative around veterans is not reflective of who we are and how can we start to have a better conversation about it? And so that's kind of where, you know, Killzone, you know, started. And then, um, you know, Lethal Minds Journal, I think falls under the Killzone umbrella. Uh, it's it's going to be, you know, Killzone produ- production, I guess. And, um, and, I, and, and where does that go? I think, you know, again, I, I think, in a year or two, you'll find that the average Joe and your average last couple Marine are discussing stuff in the latest edition of Lethal Minds Journal. And to me, uh, and what we're going to do is we're going to start at the tactical level. And I think when, you, when you've when you got all your Marines, sailors, and soldiers who are getting published and who are talking about these ideas, eventually you start to get some top-level interest and say, they're like, you know, generals and colonels right. start to say, oh, right. you've got this what are all these troops looking at? And then I think, you know, so I think it may be able to influence up. And, uh, and to me that, you know, the commandant often talks about with his new force design and commandant's planning guidance. He often says, we've got all these challenges. I don't really know how we're going to solve them, but I know the Lance corporals are going to figure it out. And so he recognizes that. And, and right. And so, and I'm saying, yeah, I agree. So if we all recognize that it's probably the troops are going to be the ones that figure out this, like, let's give them a venue to, to, to work it out publicly and yeah. uh and so that we can all see what they're thinking and so um you know where does where does that go i, I don't know uh i i'm excited to see where it goes um and then uh yeah so i i think that you'll see some lethal mine kill zone productions whether it's the lethal mines journal or maybe eventually uh i'll get talking a little bit more uh so i i i, I don't i don't know um but I know that uh, I'm going to address issues and challenges with to the best of my ability, uh, and I'm going to keep finding ways to serve and support wherever I can. And so, uh, yeah, well, I think it's it's TBD, and I I think um, I've been given an opportunity, and I've been given a platform, and uh, or I don't know if I've been given it or earned it, whatever, but I'm going to created it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think I have a couple other big things coming down that aren't necessarily within the kill zone space, but whether it's a, it's a book that's coming out or a movie, maybe, uh, you know, so as, as I, it's all about your sphere of influence. And as, as that sphere of influence, uh, expands, I'm going to keep trying to use that influence to advocate uh for things that i um believe in um there's so much else we could talk about but you've given me two hours on a saturday dude and i am deeply appreciative and i just want to end by just mentioning really quickly some bullet points of just some things that for what it's worth uh meant a lot to me um i'm sure i know meant a lot to a lot of other folks but um the pictures you had of meeting your Terp, 
um, who got out of Afghanistan. Um, that was that was an incredible needle mover. Um, I think for a lot of people, uh, it certainly meant a lot to me. I also just want to ping the last one of your most recent Instagram posts, where you go, um, where you you just give a good rebuttal to a lot of the cynicism going around the veteran community, and you have a picture of your family, and you say, "I can't afford to be cynical." Um, I I was deeply appreciative that you said that, um, and I think that's a message that needs to be heard. And sometimes we all end up in that private mindset where we bitch and moan and bitch and moan, and that becomes a normal way of thinking as opposed to, you know, realizing that there's things worth fighting for and making sure don't get screwed up. And when you have a next generation, that's important. What's the alternative, you know, give up, say, Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's like no fucking way. No fucking way. Uh, I, you know, it was, it was kind of, it was, I would prompt to that is one, obviously there's everybody's like, everybody keeps acting like 2020 has been the, and 21 and 22 have been the hardest years of human history. Like, no, they fucking have not, not even fucking close. Right. And so, you know, I mean, imagine being in Europe in World War One during World War, in, in 1916, 1917, like they fucking got through it. You know, it was fucking ugly. They got through it. Imagine 1940s and nuclear bombs are dropping. You think like the world's probably going to fucking that nuclear bombs are dropping. They got fucking through it. And, and again, you can look through the course of human history, like people are resilient and they, and, 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 and again, the alternative is, you know, so Joe Rogan posted the thing that MIT computer said, said the world's going to end and that, and that Newton said the world was going to end and that everyone's like, Oh, it's like, no, it's fucking not. It's not going to fucking end. Not on my fucking watch. And I, I look forward to being a grandfather someday. I look forward to walking my daughter down the aisle today. I'm not, I'm, you know, uh, we, we have the watch. We are not relieved. And, um, it's so easy to sit back and share all the shitty things that, that yeah, yeah. There's plenty, but it's not helping. I'm going to, I'm going to find a way to do what I can. Yeah, no, it's, it's incredibly needed. And, um, dude, this has been a, such a pleasure and I'm not going to waste, uh, more of your Saturday, but, um, let's do this again sometime. This was a blast, yeah, man. man. I really enjoyed it. And thanks for everything you're doing out there. Um, you know, you got friends over here. Um, they're really excited to see what you got coming down the pike. Thanks, boy. Appreciate it. That was Tom Schumann's profile in havoc. Um, I let him go. Cause I, I couldn't believe we got two hours. We were at two hours already. Um, and I felt like we were just warming up. Um, but I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. I look forward to getting Tom back on the show. I think there's a lot more, um, ground to cover and, uh, yeah, just an interesting dude. I hope you guys really enjoyed that. Uh, look in the show notes for all the links to all of Tom's lines of effort, um, including his Instagram account, patrol based Abate, lethal minds journal, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and check those out. It is very worth your time if you haven't, if you're not already tracking Tom and what he's up to. Okay, I started off this episode by thanking our sponsor, Second Mission Foundation. I'd like to thank our other sponsor, the Veterans Repertory Theater. Veterans Repertory Theater exists to produce veteran playwrights and celebrate veterans in the arts. It is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events. And yes, full disclosure, this is my nonprofit. 
Um, Veterans Repertory Theater produces the Savage Wonder podcast, the Savage Wonder literary blog, the Right Loud events that we talked about earlier on Instagram Live, and also the Savage Wonder Festival. So if you are around upstate New York on May 29th, the day before Memorial Day, the Savage Wonder Festival is where you want to be. Over 40 veterans in the arts, poets, musicians, bands, theater, movie screenings, uh, dancers. What am I forgetting? I always feel like I'm forgetting stuff. Uh, anyway, a whole bunch of wildly talented, successful, professional veterans in the arts. It's like a Lollapalooza for veterans in the arts. It is going to be awesome. Uh, it is. We're taking over Sugarloaf Performing Arts Center. Three stages, um, an art gallery for live art uh, showings. Uh, we have silent auctions going, a beer garden. Like it's it's going to be incredible. So come on out. Uh, we're keeping the prices as cheap as we possibly can. We want everybody to be able to come. So um, come on out and see us. It'll be all day from pretty much like noon to like yeah like twelve hour chunk of the day, meaty part of the day. Um, come on out. Everything you want to know about the Savage Wonder Festival, you can find out at savagewonder.com. That's savagewonder, all one word, dot com, savagewonder.com. Now, we have links to Savage Wonder on the Veterans Repertory Theater website as well. And I mention that only because if you want to see all the lines of effort that we have going on at VetRep, go to vetrep.org. That's V-E-T-R-E-P dot org, vetrep.org. And while you're there, uh, if you happen to be around Cornwall, New York, anytime this year, every Saturday night, just about, we have a staged reading. So come on out. It is an insane concept. It's kind of dumb, uh, but really fun where we just rented too much space. So we threw up a three and a half inch stage, uh, put up some lights and wallpapered the hell out of it. It looks like Sherlock Holmes den. And we cast actors out of the city. It's really our excuse to. Um, get to know actors that we're thinking of, um, you know, using in productions and that will actually properly mount. And so we have them come out and work out their stuff uh, on stage, doing a staged reading. It's a blast. We have, um, you know, drinks and some and really good food from the Hudson Valley farm to tableish type hors d'oeuvres. Um, so come on out, check it out. Vetrep.org. You can see all of our lines of effort, um, and we would love to see you out there at any point in any of our lines of effort that we're doing. Um, and if you obviously in person is one thing we have the podcast, the literary blog, the right loud events on Instagram live. If you're nowhere close to us, that's fine. We'd love to have you join us in any of those venues. Okay. If you're on iTunes, as always appreciate your five star review, write a review, say whatever you want to us, but if you can attach five stars to it, it would be deeply appreciated. And as always, Thanks to our producer, Michael Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Tom Schumann. And we'll see you next time for another Profile in Havoc. 